Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, OnScript listeners. I'm Matt Lynch, located here at Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We're a collective of scholars interested in the intersection of biblical studies and theology. Special thanks to the team who helped produce and run the show, including Mim Ward, Ed Hackey, Rebecca Terhune, Alan Files, and James Steinbach. Thank you so much for all the time and work that you put in. If you're looking for ways to share the word about this show, consider writing a review on iTunes or in your local neighborhood association WhatsApp group. All of that helps. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Mari Jorstad, who is a research associate at the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University, where she's working on a project called Facing the Anthropocene. She graduated with a PhD in Hebrew Bible from Duke Divinity School and is the author of a book we'll be discussing today entitled The Hebrew Bible and Environmental Ethics, Humans, Non-Humans, and the Living Landscape, published by Cambridge University Press. And in, addi- and in addition, she's also recently been appointed as Dean of the Vancouver School of Theology, which is right down the road from me. So I'm very excited about that. So Mari, welcome to OnScript. Thank you. So how did you end up focusing so much of your life's energy on the intersection of the Hebrew Bible and its living landscapes? Uh, both were in some way a bit of an accident. So I ended up going to divinity school or seminary in large part because I was trying to figure out how to stay in Canada. And that was a way of getting a visa. And then in my first Hebrew Bible class, I just really loved it. And it was a combination of loving the the actual literature, the stories, and the method that was used to study it. So p- pretty quickly, I was like, I'd like to do more of this. <laughs> and then in terms of the living landscapes, that also wasn't quite what I had planned to do. So I was planning, I'd written this paper about the ground in Genesis 4 and how it is kind of a check on human violence. And I wanted to write about that function in the Hebrew Bible. But then when I started reading, I realized that I was looking for something really systematic when what was there was this much more diffuse and like there was something in the water as opposed to this like one textual thing. And so I ended up trying to figure out what that thing in the water was. And that's how I ended up with living landscapes. So so you grew up in Norway, am I correct on that? And then lived in Canada for a while and made your way to Duke Divinity uh, for your PhD. And uh, so you worked with Ellen Davis. Was she your supervisor? Yes. Yeah. And yeah, she's okay. why I, I came to Duke in the first place. Right. And so she maybe just talk a little bit about her work and influence, because I, I know she's been very generative on the front of uh, thinking about the Bible and landscape and the the, the importance of uh, thinking with the land. How has her work influenced what you're doing? Yeah. So I read her book, uh, Scripture, Culture and Agriculture, during my master's degree, and both found it really exciting in terms of just the way she writes, like it um, it felt accessible. It felt like it was addressed to people beyond academics. And 
the book is really about like agriculture as a really important part of the Hebrew Bible and that if we don't understand ancient Israel and its surrounding neighbors as agrarian societies, we're going to we're going to miss what they're about and we're going to miss a lot about their literature. And that um, both felt super obvious, but in a, oh, I've never thought about that before kind of way. And so it really felt like it opened the door to readings I hadn't considered and topics I hadn't considered. And I've always been interested in environment and climate and those kinds of topics. It just was kind of like a, it was an interest that didn't have anything to do with my work as a biblical scholar. So when it became possible to study with her, that just felt like a great opportunity to combine some interests professionally. And also, I don't think this is the project that a lot of people would have taken as a doctoral project. My kind of elevator speech is trees or people in the Bible too. It's a bit of a, a bit of a stretch for a lot of people. And, and Ellen was just very supportive and willing to take a risk on a project that uses her work, but that is certainly not a straight continuation from her work. So I think her kind of intellectual risk-taking was really important for me working with her. Sure. So um, I, I like that elevator pitch, and maybe we could we could work off that. So trees are people, too. So uh, are you speaking in terms of, like, trees are personified in the Bible, or how exactly do you uh, mean that trees are people? So I think it would be more accurate to say trees are persons, too, but that's just not as good of an elevator speech. So it's not that people are, or that trees are humans, or that they're like a subcategory of what we are, but that, so the, the term persons is used a lot in new animism, and it's an umbrella term that is bigger than the human. So humans are not the kind of primary example of persons, and then you've got subcategories. It's persons is a bit category, and then there's a bunch of subcategories of which human persons are one. But you've also got tree persons, rock persons, donkey persons, cardinal persons, like you can go on and on. And in some ways, it's the idea that everything has a, an, a perspective on life and an experience of life. So when I say that trees are people too or persons too, I'm not saying that there's like a tree brain hidden somewhere that's doing human things, but that that trees have a real and valid experience of life um, and that that experience works through some of the categories that we also experience life through. So trees eat, their bark functions a lot like skin. They can get infections like we can. They have babies. They do that differently than we do, but um, they too, you know, seek to reproduce and then take steps to protect their uh, babies in some way. And when you start to think of it like that, you don't have to personify the trees. Like it's not about anthropomorphizing the world, but about thinking through and taking seriously that kind of all creatures have experiences that have something to do with our experiences, even if they're quite different. Yeah. And part of the argument of your book is that the Bible reflects this idea and 
advocates this idea. I think a lot of us are probably familiar with texts like the trees of the fields will clap their hands or the heavens declare the glory of God. But it's easy to to sort of file those texts under the category of rhetorical flourish or metaphor um, that, you know, biblical writers have uh, biblical poets take poetic license like anyone does and applies human emotions and activities to the natural world. Uh, so like trees don't actually have hands. So um, in what ways is that understanding of what the biblical writers are doing falling short of what you think is actually happening? So I do think they're metaphors. Like, trees definitely don't have hands. But the problem with that thinking starts is when we say they're just metaphors. So metaphors are never just, right? We use metaphors to be more precise about something. So if you were to say about a person, like a human, that they reflect the glory of God, you don't mean that they are a mirror that literally reflects some sort of godness. You mean that when you see them, you see in them some of the kind of best things about God. That is a metaphor, but you're trying to say something. And similarly, when you say the trees of the field um, will clap their hands, you're not saying that the trees have hands, but that there is a way in which trees can celebrate or be joyful, that what happens in the world and in this case, to the Israelite exiles, matters to trees in some way. So I don't think it's a problem to say that writers use metaphor or poetic language. It's a problem when we just assume that that's empty. It's sort of a, like a mis, misplacer of um, what metaphors and, and poetic language does. And it lets us off the hook, because once you assume they're serious, the texts are much more difficult. You can't just sort of like skate by them. One of the things you said in the book was Isaiah attributes mood to trees, mood and historical awareness. And then you said, I might describe a tree as happy or unhappy, say, in its flourishing and bearing fruit. But it would not occur to me to talk about trees rejoicing at the end of World War II or at the return of refugees to the Balkan Peninsula. Biblical writers do so. And this is what I want to understand. What did you come to understand about the ways that biblical writers describe the natural world that maybe surprised you or you had a sort of um, too limited an understanding of that you, you came to better understand through this study? Well, I guess first I would say that I, I still feel like very much a baby learner in this respect and that I think this way of viewing the world is it's like serious philosophy that in the Western world has mostly been denigrated and like a PhD is not actually enough time to understand or live within it. So I don't want to say that I like, I got it, I'm done. But I think thinking about, like if I think of those two examples, World War II and the Balkans, that those were incredibly destructive to more than humans. Right? They destroyed landscapes. They required extreme extraction of resources. They um, upset long-standing traditional codependencies in terms of agriculture and other forms of land management. Like they were bad for trees. That's, that's real. And I don't think like that's something that people would dispute. It's the idea that then the trees are kind of relieved at the end that I think is foreign. And I think that's what we need to take 
more seriously that it's not it's not just about like we're not going to have nice landscapes if we keep bombing them or doing other forms of destructive behavior it's the landscapes themselves have a stake in their own health hmm. and they have a perspective on the end of the war that would be you know well described as rejoicing and you can see you know rebounding landscapes i think people experience that as something joyful um but attribute that just to the human experience of it but that that is more like participating in the kind of relief of the landscape than it is just about kind of human observation. What, why don't you give our listeners a sense of the range of things that the land or uh, that the natural world is said to have done in the Bible? I was, I, was, I was nervous that I wouldn't have enough text to write about. And then I realized it was like shooting fish in a barrel. And it was more about deciding what could be kept out. So um, it's really, it's everything from the very grand to the very minor. So especially in Genesis and Leviticus, you see land and other parts of the landscape given important responsibilities. So the sun and the moon and the stars are given the responsibility to rule the day and the night, much like humans. And the land in Leviticus is charged with observing Sabbath. And also with observing like purity rules, really. So it's um, it's the responsibility of the land to remain clean. And the land is also given ways to deal with uncleanliness, much like the human sacrificial system does that for humans. Um, but then you have, like, it's a very common phrase, the land will carry or will not carry. So the, the land has a responsibility or a role in sustaining people. Which again is kind of obvious, right? We we rely on agriculture and husbandry too. We just don't see it as much, but that's um, described in a much more active way than we would. There's also, especially in the prophets, a lot of emotion attributed to the non-human world. So um, there's a lot of texts about grief, but then also the corresponding texts about joy, and they tend to parallel the texts about human grief and human joy. It's like the categories are so many, so I'm just trying to... Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> there's also illness and health attributed. So um, Elisha heals waters that are bad for drinking and for agriculture. That's, descri that's described in the terms of physical healing as opposed to like fixing them uh, or, I don't know, purifying or... Um, and there's a text in Kings where they after taking a city, are told to hurt the land with stones. So I don't know if anyone's lived in an area where fields belch stones. Uh, in Norway, most fields are full of stones, and you have to keep clearing them. And a, a stoned field is a field you can't use, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I had a summer job one time clearing stones from a golf course. <laughs> and uh, and it just felt like they, they just kept surfacing. It would rain and then more stones would be there. It was an endless job. Yeah, so, no, yeah, they do keep I know surfacing. It's real. Yeah. They, they keep coming up. <laughs> well, and one of the ones I like that you talked about is the land vomiting. I guess that has to do with health in the book of Leviticus, that if the people keep defiling the land, eventually it would just vomit the people out. And that's a very active image. And, you know, when you compiled 
all the texts in the Hebrew Bible that give agency to the land and recognize emotions of the land and responses and relationships. It, it is quite striking. It does suggest something more than, you know, biblical writers are just very imaginative, that maybe this is a conception of the world that differs from modern conceptions. Yeah, Leviticus in particular, Leviticus and then Ezekiel picks up on it, is very concerned with with how humans affect the ability of the land to live up to its responsibilities. Leviticus also talks about the land prostituting itself. So if if humans prostitute their daughters, the land will be prostituted. And so there's this very close, the human-land relationship is very close. And so what one does closely reflects or closely affects the other partner. And there's articles that sort of say, like, basically, this is unfair. And I think that's probably true, but also kind of irrelevant. Um, It's sort of like humans in the land are in this symbiotic relationship. And if one part goes bad, the symbiotic relationship can't help but be affected. Um, And um, what's, I think, difficult to understand from a modern perspective is that the writers say, if the land has to choose between humans and God's responsibilities, the land is going to choose the responsibilities it has to God. And it's going to throw you out. Um, (laughs) To keep Sabbath. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to keep Sabbath. Um, And and that's like deadly serious in Leviticus. Uh, and, And because so much of the Bible is written with the exile in mind, it's both deadly serious and it's a known reality, right? It's like the land has already done it. So the the symbiotic relationship between humans and the land is, is something I've thought about as well, because I when I wrote on violence, one of the texts that I focused on a lot in which you focus on your book is the Cain and Abel story, where the land gets involved in in something that seemingly is between Cain and his brother. And of course, part of the backdrop there is that humans are made from the soil. And so, of course, the soil is going to get involved. And, and I think as a modern reader, it's easy for us to look at something and say, okay, I get that in war, we humans destroy the land. And so the land suffers in that way. But it, but it seems like biblical writers have a more, I don't know if the word is mystical or just a sense that that relationship runs deeper than just those direct actions against the land, you know, salting fields or something like that. So how have you thought about that what is it that binds humans in the land together such that Cain killing his brother Abel would evoke a response from the ground? So I definitely think it's deeper than the sort of illustrations that I can, that I can come up with. And the illustrations are partly a way to get us started. I think like indigenous writers know way more about this than, than I do and like live a relationship with land that is multi-generational and has like a practical outworking for this idea that I, especially I think as an immigrant miss, because I don't, like I have left the land that I grew up in. And in some ways I think that there's something illuminating about that. So when people say like Westerners are really placeless, I can both say I'm an example of that. I have lived in four countries, two continents, by many different kinds of water. But also, like, when I go home, that landscape is different to me than any other landscape. Um, and, and I don't know exactly what that is. Like, I can't, I can't define what that relationship is. But it is 
like it feels like that is like in my bones and that I can't unchoose that. And the sort of like really difficult thing is like, does the land feel that way about me? I don't know. Um, but that's part of what the, the Bible suggests, right? Like that um, you see this, especially in Ezekiel, that it is, it is a sorrow to the land to be deprived of its people and its animals. And that restoration for the land is the return of them. So like, yes, the land will vomit you out to keep Sabbath, but it gives the land no pleasure to do that. And the ideal picture is that you live there again in an appropriate and respectful way. It's not like the ideal in the Bible is not that like the world becomes a big national park with no people in it. Right. Yeah, I thought that was a helpful idea. You said that the ideal situation is not pristine wilderness in the Bible. So what is the ideal? The ideal, I mean, in many ways, it's like a small farm agrarian community. And the Bible doesn't, it's not that there aren't non-inhabited places in the Bible in terms of humans, like those are there. It's just that that's not really the focus of the biblical text. The biblical text is very much about humans living well. So it's going to address situations in which there are humans. Like the sort of most, I mean, you can think of, of Song of Songs, the book in the Bible that is the most sort of like, what would it look like if we didn't keep screwing up? And it's a agricultural society, lots of fruits everywhere, but there's also buildings and streets. There's a sense of like parties. There's often descriptions of weddings in ideal texts, like people are getting married and having babies, which is not to say that everyone needs to do those things, but it's this like sense of a society that is reproducing itself in harmony with its surrounding fields. So a city and its fields are called a city and its daughters. So there's this kind of healthy familial relationship between people, animals, the land they live on um, that's ongoing. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I remember reading a book uh, not too long ago about a, uh, a huge, I think it was the Johnstown flood in Pennsylvania. This is, this is when like a, um, outside of Pittsburgh, a big dam broke and, um, and destroyed this uh, really two towns downstream from there. But the dam was built at the beginning of an era of um, outdoor recreation when that was becoming a thing where people, um, especially really wealthy people around Pittsburgh, wanted to get away. And uh, so they built this artificial lake because all wealthy people in New York had had uh, a nice lake, but in Pittsburgh they didn't. So they, they dammed up this river, built this huge lake to get away out into nature. But in the process, they, they actually didn't understand how to relate well to the natural world. So they built this faulty dam with nice cottages around it, but eventually that broke and destroyed a whole town. That just feels like a metaphor for idealizing getting away to the wilderness, but then that ends up in disaster. And, and when you said that in the book, it, it struck me that, yeah, you don't really have like, you know, Moses, he doesn't sort of get out to the wilderness and, and to explore the beauty of it and, and idealize that and romanticize it. The prophets don't romanticize it. It's always the ideal of having vineyards that you're tending in your land. So there's the land is very present, but it's in a in that symbiotic way that you describe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're all working landscapes. Yeah. And and that doesn't mean that they're not also texts that are quite sort of rhapsodic about them. But but these were people who if they didn't farm they died. In in I mean that's obviously true of us too. Like 
we too would die if we didn't farm. But it's not usually individual by individual, whereas the vast majority of ancient Israelites were personally involved in farming in a landscape where drought was frequent. And like if you if you didn't pay attention, things were going to go badly. Sure. Um, I want to do a speed round with you. Um, what's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? Oh, gosh, I should be able to answer that. Uh, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> so the honest answer is that I, um, like, I, I love my own field's writing, but the books that most influence me are generally outside of the field. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't so, know. So, so what... What are some of the books outside the field that have most influenced your thinking and writing as you come to the biblical text? Uh, so Graham Harvey's writing on animism, super helpful. Um, I would say maybe in biblical studies, it's it's maybe a little, no, it's within your time frame. Um, Mary Douglas's writing and Milgram's writing, uh, especially on Leviticus, have been very helpful. One of the things I like to do to help advance the work of others is to do a book review. And, and so I, I put a, I picked a random word from your book and the, the, I just opened it and I came upon the word apostrophe and I put that word into Amazon books. And I'm wondering if you could give uh, a rating out of five stars of the book that I found. It's called greedy apostrophe, a cautionary tale by Jan Carr, or maybe it's Jan Carr. And here's a little bit about the book. It's the moment all the punctuation marks have been eagerly awaiting assignment time. There are plenty of open positions for apostrophes as contractions. Soon, there's only one job left for a possessive and only one apostrophe to fill it. None other than greedy apostrophe. I don't even understand that. Okay. It's not long before his greed gets out of hand. He jumps into signs where he doesn't belong. What will it take to put greedy apostrophe back in his place? This clever and zany language arts book will have kids eager to learn the tricks of using an apostrophe. So how many stars do you give it out of five? That just sounds really exciting to me. So maybe four and a half. Four and a half. Like a, okay. a, a book all on apostrophes sounds, sounds kind of dreamy. Exactly. And, and um, I know you use the word apostrophe differently in your book, but th that doesn't matter. Okay. There um, is a book on the infinitive absolute in... Mm. Aramaic that I really love. Mm. It is the nerdiest oh, really? book ever. I would recommend it to everyone. <laughs> and who wrote uh, a book I don't on the infinitive? Remember. Yeah, on the infinitive absolute. I'm sure our listeners are going to run out and, and buy that one. So yep. in addition to buying your book, of course. Okay, knock knock. Who's there? To. To who? To whom? <laughs> that is one of my favorite jokes. <laughs> 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 okay. Again, grammar. Right. Just... Yeah. Okay. Um, knock, knock. Who's there? Figs. Figs who? Figs a doorbell. It's broken. <laughs> okay. What's you grew up in Norway, and mm -hmm. and one thing we try to avoid is stereotypes, and and so I, I was hoping you could clear a few things up for for listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, I just had a few questions about Norway. So, um, is it true that Norwegians never get cold? No. But rarely, because we're very good at layering. Okay. Um, is it true that Norwegians ski every, everywhere and never use cars? No, but we do ski a lot. That is true. Okay. Yeah, I was in um, a, a ski race, cross-country ski race in 
northern Wisconsin once, and the Norwegians came over for this race. They were like in the first heat that went out. And uh, my goodness, they were incredible. Um, Okay. Is it true that polar bears wander the streets in almost every Norwegian village and city? Totally false. Um, Polar bears only um, exist on Svalbard, which is um, an island in like polar regions in Norway. So that that answers another question, which is that you don't use them for transport, transportation. No, no, that would be great. Okay. Very dangerous, but great. Um, How do Norwegians grow plants when you get 12 solid months of darkness? (laughs) Um, We get six months of solid darkness in the north. Um, But uh, truth is, Norway has never been great at growing plants. We have lived off of fish and, I guess, potatoes. Okay. Okay. Norway is another place Um, where famine was frequent. (laughs) (laughs) To, to what extent is your average Norwegian still involved in looting and pillaging places like England? Um, minorly, mostly it's now a, like a duty-free activity. Okay. Alcohol is cheaper so, pretty much everywhere except for Norway. Oh, really? Alcohol and meat, okay. yep. We get those on vacation. Are there any other details about life in Norway that you'd like to clear up for listeners? Maybe stereotypes that you think that you, uh, people tend to hold about Norway? Well, this is probably just something people don't know, but uh, mm-hmm. you can get a lot of food in a tube in Norway. <laughs> Cheese, Nutella, jam. If you can squeeze it, it's going to come in a tube. Oh, my. That sounds lovely. Um, do you have a favorite novel or poetry collection? Uh, my favorite book, at least at the moment, I'm not very good at commitment, mm-hmm. is uh, Tove Jansson's The Summer Book. Okay. I don't know that one. I'll have to look She's it up. the writer of the Moomin series. That tends to be how people know her. But okay. the summer book, I think, is her masterpiece. Very cool. All right. Back to uh, the, the book that you wrote. You mentioned in several places that scholars often assume that if biblical writers actually thought the moon, stars, or land had agency, then that means they were divinized. Um, so what about that assumption is faulty, in your opinion? It comes out of comparison with other ancient Near Eastern societies, some of which did divinize the sun and the moon and other landscape features. Though many of, or some of them, divinized some of them and not others, but still kind of acknowledge them as like powerful presences. So I think it's helpful to think of uh, humans and non-humans existing in like a power spectrum or an abilities spectrum. So Everything has things they're able to do and responsibilities attached to that. And those uh, differ quite a lot depending on what kind of body you're in. So humans are not able to rule the day and the night because we do not emit sun from outer space or emit light from outer space. The sun can do that. We can't do it. But the fact that the sun has quite a lot of power doesn't mean that that power is comparable to God's power. And so ancient Israelites, I think, acknowledged that power as as one power within the created universe, but also thought it was completely dependent on God's power in the way that their power also was dependent on God's power. So I think at one point I say, like, you're able to recognize, like, your grandma as a person, but that doesn't mean that you think she's a goddess. And it's the same kind of thing where you 
are able to say the sun can do things, and some of them are things that's way beyond me. But that doesn't mean that the sun is a goddess. It's it's another creature with abilities and responsibilities. Yeah, I thought that was so helpful because I I think particularly in discussions around monotheism, which is where I've done a lot of thinking about this. I, I remember reading a study on Second Isaiah, and the the author was saying that because the stars can appear or not appear, then Deutero-Isaiah is not monotheistic because the stars have some kind of agency. And and after reading your work, I felt like I had language for saying, no, the assumption that something can be active or relational is not a sign of divinization, but just a broader part of a broader conception of how Hebrew writers thought about the world, the natural world. Well, and I didn't... I didn't do tons of writing about this, but I think uh, an interesting point of comparison is looking at the invading powers in the Hebrew Bible. So all the um, empires that at some point rule Israel and Judah, that they are often attributed power as agents of God. Right? They are. They have these really important historical functions in in Israel's relationship with God. But there's no confusion. It's not like maybe Babylon is divine somehow, or maybe um, maybe their gods are better than we thought. It's being able, it's like a really sophisticated understanding of how agency of a particular creature relates to divine agency. And that's always going to be hard. Like, I don't think that's an easy question, but... But there's lots of other examples in the Bible of things that um, do important actions that are attributed to themselves properly, but also in some ways to God without God's just like multiplying all over the place. Right. Uh, I wanted to jump to the end of your book where you discuss the book of Job, uh, which I found really interesting. And there were lots of resonances with the Cain and Abel story. How does how does attending to personalistic text help us grasp the dialogue between Job and his friends, and then the seemingly you know, abrupt shift toward creation in the divine speeches? Because I, I felt like you're, you might be making a case that God, what God says about the physical world is not completely disconnected from what's gone before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think the, the dialogues in Job are difficult, right? Because they're these like incredible sort of in-house discussion of Israelite tradition and biblical text that assume a relationship to it that we don't quite have. Like it's, it's hard to see the most committed seminary student probably would not have this discussion with his or her friends. Um, and, but in that discussion, part of what they are talking about is the extent to which the world and especially Job's particular part of the world, like his fields and his land, the extent to which they are responding to his actions. And so his friends are saying, look, your fields are withered. You've clearly been bad. And Job is saying, um, if I have mistreated my fields, like let them say so. Um, and they're, all of them are appealing to the non-human world as a, at least as a witness in some, in Job's cage as a sort of secondary judge in this fight that Job is having with God. And I don't think it's super helpful to think of it in like a really specific courtroom terms, but the land is definitely involved in that fight. And I think part of how that connects with the divine speeches, 
after is it's not so much that God says that's not true, but that that is only part of how the world relates to humans and how part of the world relates to God. And and I think that's actually a really important thing to keep in mind for present-day readers. One of the dangers of of reading texts like Genesis 4 and seeing how the land responds to murder is to assume that we can, it's, it can sort of become a kind of prosperity gospel, right? It's like, if you don't have this pushback from the world, you must be doing things right. And Job is kind of a check on that. It's like, there's just lots of things that have nothing to do with us. And that doesn't really care about us. It's the one place in the Bible where you really see non-human landscapes in a detailed way. Like the ostrich, I guess we farm them now, but like the ostrich does not go around worrying about humans. Totally indifferent. So I think it's a, it's an important counterpoint to texts that are about the sort of symbiosis between humans and the land. That like, yes, that's true. But there's also, that's not all there is to say about the world. And the whole of creation is not like focused on that one relationship. Right, right. So, so there's not a... Um, there's not always a direct and immediate causal relationship between the land suffering and human moral behavior. So do you think Job's then intentionally complicating the our understanding of the sort of moral fabric that binds humans and the land together? Yeah, and I think especially of really confident abilities to read that. So, um, and and I think in terms of the, like, why is it a dialogue between these friends and Job, that it's particularly cautioning against reading that for others. So like, I know why you suffer. It's because of these, I can see in the land that you've done these things, uh, that that is, that we need to be really humble um, about our ability. And I mean, we've seen examples of that in, with like Katrina or with Haiti, people saying, well, this is, this is because of um, various sins people have committed. And, um, it's sort of, it's easy to be horrified by that, but you can also see how you get there from the Bible. And so I think Job is, it's one place where you can see a kind of nuanced thinking about why that is a bad use of the biblical text. I'm just wondering if you could talk about some of the ways that personalistic view of nature texts in the Bible um, might impact environmental ethics today. I think it just sets the bar really high. If we think about sustainability primarily as a question of like human continuance, that's a kind of minimal standard. Like I think it's, we, we need to get there. It would be great if even we were hitting that. But while well, going back to ideal landscapes, the ideal landscapes in the Bible is one in which everything from like soil to trees to luminaries, probably can't do much about the luminaries, but are able to flourish and are treated with respect. And so I think asking asking those kinds of questions, like how do we make this landscape not just um, kind of wonderful for humans, but like what do the trees really need? What do the waterways need? Like what, what, do we, what are we doing when we make the kind of most convenient solution for us? Um, like, um, you know, making waterways straight, for example, or burying them for cities. Like they're still technically there, but they're certainly not living their full life. And so how do we, I think it's really about creating landscapes that are hospitable to all kinds of persons. Um, and one thing, way that I've been thinking about that in my own neighborhood is we have all these 
um, willow oaks. And willow oaks are, they start becoming quite brittle when they are around 100 years old. And so they just start dropping these huge limbs, which is not great. I've had a f friends whose car was crushed. Uh, house, we had houses in our neighborhood where um, basically the whole house had been taken out. And fortunately, no one in our neighborhood has been injured or killed. But so it's, they're taking down the trees. And that's necessary as it is. But like, what if we had built the city in such a way that the trees could grow old there? What would that have looked like? Um, currently, that's impossible um, because they take out, well, they take out houses, they take out our power grid. Like we're just, we're not in a relationship where we can respect that process. But it's not impossible to build in a way where willow oaks can like be born and die without our interference in terms of cutting them down, which is not to say you should never cut down a tree. The Bible certainly wouldn't imagine that you wouldn't use things. Like, it's okay to use fuel and okay to eat things. But there's ways of doing that respectfully, and then there's ways that are sort of cued to human needs only. Yeah, and I like that the example you gave is is about like how we live with and relate to and in our built environments too, and not just you know what what park do we need to protect, which is also great, but but not how the Bible tends to conceptualize these things. Yeah, it's primarily concerned with built environments or yeah. with yeah with human yeah. inhabited environments. Um, I, I also wanted to ask what, what you do with the text where it seems like the land or the river is an opponent of God. You know, you, you talk about how the physical world has its own relationship with God, according to the Bible. That's apart from necessarily the human to God relationship. But sometimes that's a fraught relationship, too. So what does that tell us about the physical world? Does it does this lend itself to an environmentally destructive ethic? So I don't think so, though I also don't, it's not like the Bible is like ecologically perfect, right? It's not like a guidebook for how to solve everything. Um, there's like serious wisdom, but there's also, it's sort of a, the biblical writings are trying to figure things out too. I think the, the thing that I take from texts where either where, I mean, the waters are the, the one kind of creature that's the most often singled out as being a little difficult. Uh, though in Ezekiel, Ezekiel prophecies to valleys and ravines, and he really like gold goes all the way out in terms of who he addresses. Um, like, I think this is one of the evidences of how seriously the biblical writer takes the responsibilities of the non-human world that like us, they can fail at it. It's not sort of like the world is automatically obedient while humans are all over the place. The, the non-human world too is sometimes less than it can be and sometimes that's totally our fault that sort of doesn't matter to the biblical writer whose fault it is the important thing is that you are kind of fulfilling your responsibilities within this network of relationships i mean i do think the waters are the most difficult case um but actually going back to ellen davis uh, she's written about the statement in revelation where it says in the the seas will be no more and is that is that an ecologically damaging statement? And she says basically, the Mediterranean Sea was the necessary condition for the Roman Empire and their trade. And so the oppression of the Roman Empire depended entirely on sea routes. And if those weren't there, they just couldn't oppress people in that way. And so it's more of a political statement than it is like a desire to dry up. Like it's not like. I don't like oceans. Let's get rid of them. 
it's it's a statement about again this like in this case really troubling symbiotic relationship between an empire and a body of water and it's addressing that from the ocean side of this symbiosis not the human side but it's concerned about that relationship more than about like cease in general. Yeah, it reminds me too then of, you know, when Yahweh slays Rahab, the river dragon, th- this is not just like a random river that God takes out his anger on, but it's specifically the Nile, which is tied up with the Egyptian imperial system at that time. So yeah, that, that kind of fits with a similar idea. And also like most of the people around them had some sort of creation story in which someone slays a water monster. And I guess this is like more about my idea of revelation than it is about living landscape, but that um, that revelation happens in relationship to those peoples around them. Like Israel is not in, in an isolated bubble. And yeah, that, that that's part of the, that fi- I think it's, it gets really complicated, but that's part of understanding their relationship to the natural world is also understanding their cultural position in relation to neighbors. Mari, you've done this book, a uh, great book on uh, Hebrew Bible and environmental ethics. What's your, where are you taking your research next? Um, so what I'm working on, well, I'm working on a bunch of like little things related to the book, but the thing that I'm, the book that I'm writing is called, at least working title, um, don't actually have lots of control over what your books end up getting called, but it's called At a Loss. And it's thinking about like migration and land politics uh, and the violence connected to that in, in present day, but thinking about that through the biblical text. So one chapter is about foreign women in the Bible. I'm, I'm a foreign woman and woman in my context. So kind of thinking through my experience of immigration and things like that through those texts. And then one chapter is about Joshua, always a hard book, uh, and about what we can learn about current land politics and especially um, as that those relate to race. And I've written more about the U.S. context than the Canadian one, but the issues aren't so different, though there's more, you know, slavery certainly is a, a much bigger issue in the U.S. than in Canada. But in terms of indigenous lands and restorations of lands, those issues are comparable. And the chapter that I'm working on now that I have two young children and it's poorly timed is about Psalm 137 and violence against children as about a part of colonialism and white supremacy that we don't tend to think think about. And then why, why might someone need to talk about violence against children in response to that? Um, but yeah, writing that when you have a baby, I yeah. wouldn't recommend it. It's way yeah. too much thinking about. <laughs> I, could, I could imagine you have to set that chapter aside for a little while. Yeah, and during COVID too, it's just been too sad. But it is like a chapter I really care about. But it's certainly not an easy one to write. And I've written an article about Psalm thirty-seven, so it's it's kind of a continuation of that, but with with different focus. Well, that sounds like an important work, and I look forward to reading it when when it comes out. So, Mari, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript today. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.